Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. In this series, we're bringing together leading thinkers to ask one of life's most important, substantial questions. What does it mean to live wisely and well? We'll get expert insight on neurobiology, mortality, loneliness, the meaning of an intellectual life, and more. In this episode, we'll talk with Kate Baller about her life experiences and how they've impacted her view of God. By the time I was leveled with a stage four cancer diagnosis, I had fully internalized that I am running an obstacle course and all of this depends on me. And so I found myself hoping for all of the same prosperity gospel dreams that I had been trying to compassionately but carefully document for such a long time. And it really cured me of a kind of, any kind of, frankly, like snobbery about prayers, desperation for miracles, the intensity of hope. This is an edited version of our online conversation from February of this year. You can find the full video of that conversation on our website at ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. So in an age of Photoshop filters, image management, personal branding, and curated media feeds, it can be very easy to feel like everyone around us is busy living their best life, going from strength to strength, smoothly sustaining professional advancement, self-actualization, Olympian workouts, happy families, and deep friendships. And we alone are coping with heartache, loss, and pain. But all of us will experience heartbreak and suffering in our lives and be confronted with losses we cannot regain, hardships we did not choose and cannot shake. And no matter how we might yearn for certainties and coherence or strive for control, there remains a dark mystery in suffering and a limit to our understanding and agency. So how and where do we find hope and life amidst loss and pain? What does it mean to find blessing in imperfect days and the lives we actually have? These are obviously big questions and deep waters with no easy answers. But tonight we'll have the opportunity to hear from our guest who has grappled with such questions with remarkable honesty, faith, and love, even in facing her own medical life sentence. Kate Bowler is a New York Times best-selling author, a historian, podcast host, top TED talker with more than six million views, and associate professor of the history of Christianity in North America at Duke Divinity School. Her scholarly works include Blessed, A History of the Prosperity Gospel, and The Preacher's Wife. But she's not only an accomplished scholar, she's also a woman with a remarkable story. At the age of 35, with a bright future and a baby son, she was unexpectedly diagnosed with stage four cancer and told that she had less than a year to live, an experience she has written about in two extraordinary memoirs entitled Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved and in No Cure for Being Human. Since then, she has created and launched, along with producer Jessica Ritchie, the podcast Everything Happens, where she talks with a variety of guests about the wisdom distilled from their own experiences, and co-written with Jessica her latest work, 
and the new release, The Lives We Actually Have, A Hundred Blessings for Imperfect Days, which we've invited her here tonight to discuss. Kate, welcome. Oh my gosh, I should be so lucky to have two preachers before me. That was stunning. Uh, this is a really special community. And a, look at all your gorgeous moon faces. I mean, come on. This is a, um, a perfect place to be imperfect. And I feel, I feel so grateful. It's, uh, it's a weird time for us to feel like we are attempting to remake ourselves. I think especially, not just in the last few years, but even in the last few months, we constantly feel the fits and starts of the momentum of our life. We feel the sort of, we can look down on what was once a poured slab foundation and see all the little fissures there. And we may have more of a sense of the intense fragility of our lives than we find useful. Because here we are. We are people who are changed somehow. And I think that's one of the very difficult to describe truths about survival, about how we are different than we were before, how we want to reach for a kind of hope that things don't even always have to be as they've been. We want to believe that change is possible. We could be kinder, perhaps, than we've ever been more empathetic than we were raised to be, more aware of policies that bring justice to our neighbors, and while we're on the subject of neighbors, less pissy about our actual neighbors. <laughs> and I think we have the sense consistently that we want not just to simply pass the years, but to outgrow our worst selves. That each passing year might bring not just change, but transformation. And I think that is, frankly, the language that we are particularly good at, is because we just finished February, so we are about 100 days into not achieving our New Year's resolutions. <laughs> so now is almost like the perfect time to set aside our grand religion of New Year's, of New Year, New You. Surprise, rinse, repeat. New Year, New You. Surprise, rinse, repeat. New Year. But I think by now, we might feel a little frustrated that we ought to have been different, given all we've learned and how far we've come. We may feel, as the ancient Roman philosopher Seneca said, that this space that has been granted to us rushes by so speedily and so swiftly that all save a very few find life at the end, just as we are getting ready to live. And I think we would be lying if we didn't say that trying feels a little bit harder than it did before. And that must be especially difficult for Americans to admit, she said respectfully as a Canadian, who wanted so much to bring it up earlier in the conversation, but has politely waited till now. But Americans are famous for trying to try. And I love too being in an America room and have these, and thank you for putting the Canadian flag so near the door. I was. I loved, Edgardo, what you said about our plausible responses, the, the desire for escape, and sometimes that can include joy. But then the other, which is the white-knuckling 
response in which we double down on an account of our own sanctification. We are wearied, who then weary. And that's just what I wanted to say for one moment, because I have you captive for one moment. But that, it's a very popular American response to imagine then in our weariness that every act of God or pandemic or tragedy is here to teach us a really important lesson about trying. And if that does not feel familiar anymore, I would just go with me in your mind to the beginning of the pandemic when the American middle class seemed to experience just a surge of collective resolve. We weren't trapped at home in a remaking Earth plague. We were cutting down on our commute time. We were spending more quality time with loved ones. We were picking up old hobbies. There were just silver linings everywhere. I heard about sourdough starters from people I once respected. I learned about the shocking benefits of applying for suburban chicken coop licenses. Carpe diem, we got a Peloton, you know? It, there were just bucket list items there to check off right at home. Just think about the beach body we made from the free weights we found in the garage. <laughs> Count your blessings, be more present. Hadn't you always wanted to spend more time with your family? <laughs> I started a French immersion during the pandemic, by the way. I made the mistake of signing my son up for the French immersion school of my youth. And he got half an hour of online learning. So all I heard was like, bonjour, 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 bonjour. And then like 50 people trying to auto shut off children's microphones. <laughs> but Sri, you couldn't have said a more perfect inventory of the feeling we have then right now if we check our social media feed. Because you already know, and if you haven't, people mailed them to you at Christmas. They, it's just, every family has a scholarship winner, and, and we are really happy for them. Other people, if you don't know, are already living beautiful, perfect, effortlessly joyful lives. And it's pretty embarrassing that you in particular, I can't look at you though, because you look so nice, but like, <laughs> I want to be like, but you in particular, have not joined their ranks already. I made a very simple list. We were supposed to, ready? Use this moisturizer, lose any extra pounds. Did you really give 10% of your income to charity this year? Your grandma needs a card. I'm not sure you've forgiven your father. Wait, what about that credit card debt? Did you finish your degree? Also, your partner thinks you're selfish. But I think the key thing is that, and I think we can all feel it at this very moment, but there is a 99% chance that your photos were not synced with the cloud. <laughs> and I don't know where it is, but you are at risk of losing them forever. And then, you know, there are all the real things. We are sick. We are tired. Our friends' problems are eating us alive. Our kids are not well. Our parents are in pain. Someone we love is losing their memory or in a difficult situation, and they are just miserable to care for. And we live under the weight of the person we expected we would be this exhausting perfectibility paradigm that tells us that we should try harder, do better. So I just have one suggestion, and that's it. I would very much like us all to give up on living our best lives now. And if I could just tell you what a wonderful, wild, and awful experience it would be for you at your next social gathering to declare it to another, preferably a stranger, 
I would love for you to use the words when they say, how are you? You say, I'm no longer living my best life now. <laughs> it's televangelist Joel Osteen, this poor man that I wrote a whole history book just so that he could coined this phrase in 2004, but what happened is almost overnight, the phrase best life now went from nothing, and you can just Google engram this sucker if you like, to being the perfect encapsulation of an entire series of multi-billion dollar promises of the health and wellness industry, all of our secular prosperity gospels, that we could be perfect, we should be perfect. And then every Hallmark movie starlet and Oprah and cousin who has recently discovered essential oils <laughs> just looked directly into their own hearts and said, uh, yeah, I should probably do that. And then we saw it on everyone's Facebook or God forbid TikTok account. And it looked something like um, surfing in New Zealand again. Does it ever get old? <laughs> or um, the ultimate relationship prosperity gospel. Happy anniversary, honey, you're my best friend, my soulmate, my everything. Hashtag blessed. One time though, I did, I was, I've never seen, I had never seen yachts before. And I was perusing the docks, and these are my walking hands. Actually, I did need to stabilize. And I did see a yacht that genuinely said, too blessed to be stressed. And you just see me on a dock, just so happy, so happy for him. But I think the collective weight of this message is now something we see not only in megachurches to Burning Man. This is obviously a Burning Man crowd, so I feel I need to bring that in now to Goop, to your local hot yoga studio where like one woman really, really, really wants to explain manifesting to you. It's also an entire section in Target. It's always right beside whatever Joanna Gaines has just made. And we are very happy for her, but the section beside it is the good vibes only section in which we are being reminded that we can organize ourselves, heal ourselves, budget ourselves, love ourselves, eat ourselves whole, and anything less is low self-esteem. And it has become the dominant mode of how we think about what we are capable of inside a day, a week, a month, a life. We are living inside modernity's fever dream that asks us, can we conquer this project called the self? And if you don't believe me, but you do, of course, because we are friends, but if you didn't, just look at the weekly New York Times list. And if you were like me and you made weird spreadsheets, which I do, but if you go back to when it, the, in 1984, the New York Times was so disheartened by the juggernaut, which is this genre of perfectibility, that it just gave up and it made its own list. And that list is called self-help slash advice slash think recipes slash miscellaneous. And that's because if it hadn't, no other work of nonfiction would have had a fighting chance. That is how dominant this mode of cheap paperback religion that we have ingested, which has now become fully orbed commercial enterprises. Someone always has a, a social scientist or one psychologist who's willing to back it with a psychological stamp of expertise. And because I'm a sadist, I made a list of everyone's reading habits during the pandemic because I thought, surely, surely now 
when we are facing an exhausting earth plague would be the time to challenge this dominant cultural narrative. But what it did, and I think, so you know the answer to what happened. <laughs> I don't, I'm skipping the part where I tell you that it got worse because what it has done to all of us. And so I spent all of my 20s, uh, for some chosen reason, interviewing televangelists. And I feel like you could tell that about me. Uh, so, but it was my great, it was my great privilege and joy to take very seriously people who are attempting a theological framework around the feeling of being happy, wealthy, whole, that God looks at us and just says yes. Because don't we just want God to say yes sometimes? But we have this caricature of the televangelist and uh, televangelism. And now if you look at the diffusion of this impulse into our social media habits, what we can see, like we're just all running 24-hour programming now. What it's done to all of us is made us all into televangelists of good, better, best. So, my darlings, that is just why um, it's been five years of attempting to have conversations where we thread the needle on uh, never forcing anyone to say, I would never go back, or these are the lessons I learned, but the truth is there is this crystalline quality to the beauty of what we learn because we have been somehow refined by something awful. And in that, there's a little glittering gem. And that's why uh, Jessica and I, who is my co-author and co-conspirator and great joy of my life, we started writing blessings at the end because we thought, how do we take the thing and we desperately attempt to resist cliches, which we all love, myself included, and we try to say something spiritually true, which frankly is always more difficult <laughs> than I expect. <laughs> and so this language of blessing became a way to return to the beginning, which was that I had been steeped in a hashtag blessed world, and I had lost the ability to say, what then can we say about a God who desperately desires to be there in the particularity loves to surprise us with love and somehow a transcendent surprise. And so um, we thought, yeah, I think we're ready for blessing in the midst of this. And uh, I asked my friend, he is a wonderful Old Testament uh, colleague at Duke Divinity School, Stephen Chapman, because he's writing a book on blessing and I'm obviously a Hebrew scholar. So I was like, send me everything, Stephen. And um, he had this lovely phrase where he called blessing a form of emplacement like a this goes here, that goes there feeling. It reminds me of sort of spiritual interior design where you reorder all of the furniture of where you imagine things should go because in the midst of an undoing, we never really get the lives we hoped for, right? There's, and that's why we just said it over and over again, it's just the lives we actually have. So how do we then say in the midst of this, God, in the terrible and the beautiful, and the lovely and the awful, let's, let's just bless it all. So my darlings, we're gonna talk, and it's gonna be great, because Cherie is a delight. Thank you so much for having me.
Well, thanks, Kate. It's always fun to talk with you. <laughs> <laughs> so many questions. We'll just start with the fact that you know, in reading through not just your most recent yeah. book, mm -hmm. but some of the others as well, struck by a certain symmetry in oh, this. Yes. <laughs> um, you, know, you start off, started off with Blessed, yeah. you know, the history of the prosperity movement. You literally wrote the definitive scholarly work on the history of the prosperity movement. And uh, your most recent book gives us 100 blessings for imperfect days. And one of the things that I was struck by is that you've said in some of, some of your memoirs that you found through your own experience of suffering that while you, you consciously rejected the, the tenets of the prosperity movement, yeah. the, God, the idea that God wants us uh, yeah. to be healthy, wealthy, wise, popular, and everything else. I like popular. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you you'd nevertheless found that you'd internalized yes. some of those teachings. And so I'd love to hear you sort of talk about how your view of what blessing is and what it means to be blessed mm -hmm. has changed from, from blessed to yes. 100 blessings. <laughs> yes, right. From blessed to blessed is a... Uh... Well, I, I had... Um, both my parents were academics. So there was... I grew up in the... University of Manitoba, and I hope everyone from University of Manitoba hears me when I say, I love that university, but they really test manures in the fall. Every <laughs> fall, it's a historically agricultural school. I did not grow up with a sense that academia was a terribly fancy place. Mm -hmm. It was the place where lovely acts of great learning happen, but also they test manures in the fall. <laughs> and what I learned from my parents was that there can be good work, but it was always going to be a lot of exhausting scrappiness mm -hmm. because it is a, because every act is hard. And so I just started climbing a ladder without assuming that I was the kind of person who climbs ladders. And I just didn't stop. I, in part because I kept having setbacks that kept pushing me all the way down. I was like the wrong way on a moving sidewalk over and over again. I tried to finish my dissertation. I had a health disaster where I lost use of my arms for two years. So I had to do most of blessed with voice dictation, which honestly, if I'm tired, you can still hear the way I go, Sheree, comma. <laughs> but then, and then it was years of infertility. And then, uh, but everything was both amazing. I got my dream job, I married my high school sweetheart. But it, mm -hmm. everything was work always. And so by the time I was leveled with a stage four cancer diagnosis, I had fully internalized that I am running an obstacle course and all of this depends on me. And I never would have thought that spiritually I'm the kind of person who thought, God, I've really earned this, until I was so outraged that my life would end that fast after I just cleared the hurdle. I was like, okay, <laughs> I feel like maybe I'm going to introduce more spiritual language for deserve right now. <laughs> so, and so I found myself hoping for all of the same prosperity gospel dreams that I had been trying to compassionately but carefully document for such a long time. And it really cured me of a kind of, any kind of, frankly, like snobbery mm -hmm. about prayers, desperation for miracles, the intensity of hope. Like, oh, I just wanted, yeah. I wanted promises and guarantees, God. So that sort of like pulled a 
thread and then like you're wearing a sweater and then you're not wearing a sweater anymore, sort of <laughs> theologically. <laughs> so I, I think it's taken me a bit to kind of come back to the language because I felt so strange about it. I felt like I could only say it gently ironically. Uh, and then I needed to say, um, because at the end of the podcast, it's the first time I've had a community like that that I get to be actively responsible for. And I thought, no, like we need more than here's the, here's, here's Kate's didactic <laughs> moment at the end. Like, how do we ask God to, and I think this is the nature of blessing is it's similar to joy, which is we can't manufacture it. It is surprise and it is transcendent hope. And when we just get it in our lap, we think, man, thank you. You wouldn't have been here. Well done. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, another theme that seems to come out from your various works that I noticed was, was truth-telling. Yeah. And reflected in the titles of each of your <laughs> sure. books. Sure. Well, that's a weird tree. I don't like that. You're, yes, you're right. I never noticed that. That's you awful. Know, just everything happens for a reason. Other lies I love. Oh. No cure for being human. Other truths I need to hear. Yeah. The lives we actually have. No, you're right. They, 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 <laughs> this is... <laughs> I did not notice that. <laughs> so just in skimming through them, I was like, there's kind of like an implied, possibly unwelcome yeah. truth bomb that's about, yes. to, about to drop. from. And so I wondered kind of what you were thinking, yeah. the lies that we internalize and believe, sure. the lies that we try to force on those who are suffering. Yes. Yeah. It, it seems like there's, there's something coming out there. We'd love to hear your oh my thoughts gosh. on that. <laughs> Jessica, pass me my diary. I, uh, I, the, the truth is, almost right away, I, I began to lie to everybody. I was so scared that I would be the kind of person not worth all the attention it takes to carry somebody else's life. Because it's not cute. Like the, hey, guess what? I might medically bankrupt everyone I love. It got intense so quickly that I really did, it really did lose the ability to stick you. I feel like you also knew that. So <laughs> she's a prophet or she's very good at her job. Um, most of the difficult things in my life, I've wanted to keep to myself. Yeah. And then I felt the weight of the cultural scripts that reward, especially in women, to exhausting cheerfulness. <laughs> I'm supposed to be resilient at all times. And that even for every small thing in the midst of a tragedy that I was supposed to be grateful. Aren't you so glad you kept your hair? I mean, you get to these moments where you're like, You do have great hair. <laughs> I was actually really happy about it. <laughs> but in every other moment, you're like, I don't think that's the word, the word grateful is for. You know? So I, I didn't know how to. And it wasn't just that I, you, know, you can't tell a stranger even though you're ruining every kid's birthday party with your answer to, how are you? <laughs> Not well, Linda. <laughs> Not well. <laughs> but um, but I, I lied mostly to, to the people who love me best because the truth was unbearable. So I think I, start, I started writing because I, was, I needed to, uh, to say something even if, I couldn't, even if I couldn't say it to the people I love. Yeah, you've talked in your book in the introduction as well as the other books about the, the pressure to always have a lesson. Yes. And, you know, frankly, I felt that internally even just in preparing for this, you know, wanting to extract, yeah. extract the lessons. Um, That's so natural, though, because it's yeah. wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's we, a quarter turn away right. from the are, garbage version. Yeah, and we, and we yeah. are meaning-making creatures. Yes. And 
Yes. You know, I was just struck by, well, you, you said in your introduction, I'm going to quote you, you are loath to say, I learned lessons. Yes. You know, I hate how suffering people are forced to say this. Mm -hmm. uh, but you also said that you, you have learned a great deal oh. about your faith in particular, and you put it this way, about the beauty and character about a God who walks with us to the yeah. edge. And, and so I would love to hear your thoughts on kind of both what you've learned through um, mm -hmm this incredible journey. And then also what you would say to someone who is in the midst of their own suffering and yeah. feels like they don't have Ugh. the consolation yes. of some distilled lessons yes. to take from the experience. Right. And like we are always lucky if we survive long enough to get lessons. Yeah. Mostly right. we're just trying to, you know, it's Wednesday and we're doing something awful. And, <laughs> <laughs> and everyone else is doing mm -hmm. it awful with us and then we are and we endure. Mm -hmm. I think maybe the first lesson I was just a surprise. I felt, I felt so bizarrely deeply loved in the days and weeks right after my diagnosis that felt mm -hmm. entirely up against the deep horror and anger I felt. But I felt in the most embarrassing way, deeply, deeply loved by God while I was actively so angry. And uh, that felt like it stripped from me the feeling like I needed to be good anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, I took up swearing that Lent. Like, I wasn't uh, pious, I think is the word we're reaching for. Um, but I felt so loved that it did transform my understanding of whether what my effort is for. So I, I guess after that, I started thinking a lot about what we expect from God. And that sort of has been in my attempt to really try to learn from other people in my own experience. Like, what can we then say about the God of being with, about the indispensability of interdependence, um, the cruelty of the way our culture talks to and about the suffering? I mean, medical bankruptcy should not be the number one cause of bankruptcy in this country. It is, it is wild, it is wild to me what mm -hmm. we do to the suffering. Yeah. So, but I think in that, what I, so I, I'm like, in the lessons language, I'm kind of intense about like, so what then can we say? <laughs> and I, I do, um, I do believe that God draws near to the suffering. Mm -hmm. I really do. I think that is God's great A game. Mm -hmm. Not saying that he absolutely loves them more, but he definitely loves them more. <laughs> <laughs> Or at least he makes us feel that way every now and then. Yeah. You know, it, it was fascinating how you described what you just sort of alluded to that um, you know, in the days and weeks immediately afterwards, yeah. when it was a crisis, yeah. before it became chronic, um, you felt the presence of God so palpably. Yeah. Uh, and you, you talked about something else that happened that came with almost the realization, the deep realization of yeah. a frailty and finitude. And you talked about how the world around you and the people in it, you saw not only with clarity, yeah. but with, yeah. with sparkle, yeah. I think is the word that you used. Yeah. Is there something about frailty and finitude yeah. that clarifies or even bedazzles you know, our, our world? <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's the way, uh, like, if like when you, if you ever get to make a human with your body, and you know, mm -hmm. you look at them, or when a friend looks at you and just can't, and sees everything and loves the absurdity of you, 
-hmm. Like it, you, it, love is in every terrible and beautiful detail. So when I think when you, I think when we feel our own stories, yeah. like our beginning, middles, and ends, the totality of it starts to feel so extra beautiful, and awful. Mm -hmm. Because the never enoughness, I guess like a thought, so poor Duke Divinity School, I wander around there having a lot of spiritual feelings. And <laughs> we have this really sweet professor named Warren, and like he should not be the person. I'm like, Warren, I worry I don't have good enough self-esteem. <laughs> you know, but like he's a scholar of early church fathers, and that's not his specialty. <laughs> we don't have psychologists on staff for these problems. But um, I was like, Warren, do you think that because I'm hungry all out, when I look at the world then, it feels so beautiful, but it, it, I feel like I will starve to death. You know, and mm -hmm. I think that, I, but I think that's what love is, that mm -hmm. they'll never be enough. And he gave me a great book on the uh, appetites in the early church fathers. <laughs> and I think we both agreed I might not be wrong. <laughs> I'm not sure we agreed I was entirely right. But uh, every beautiful thing, I think to me that's the feeling, uh, I, I always worry that I should have the sense that so much beauty creates completeness, mm -hmm. but I, I don't think I've ever felt that way. It's, and I think that's the way God loves us, is just more and more and then more. Yeah. yeah. You, know, you had mentioned when you, well, after you got your diagnosis, uh, that you were essentially looking from, for strength and sustenance, yeah. and quickly realized, I think, maybe quoting or at least uh, paraphrasing you, that that thankfulness would not get you to wholeness. <laughs> that there were, yes. and you know, we're, we're so often, especially when things are at least you know, mildly rough, you know, yeah. kind of you know, told to counter blessings. Yes. You know, and, and gratitude, of course, is a virtue. Yes. Um, you know, we are not just called, but commanded you know, to be grateful in all things. But it would be curious like what you found the limits of gratitude to yes. be. <laughs> yes. Because so often it's applied to people in the midst of their terrible things yes. as an incredible solution to the problem of suffering. It's usually a different way of just saying, uh, you shouldn't, shouldn't you be grateful for, is very similar to the words, at least you. Which, and <laughs> any uh, relativizing is so, it's so painful when you're, when you're just, when, when even the lovely things are, I mean, it, all the be I mean, frankly, all the best things are also burdens, right? The way we love each other, anvils. The way that we care about each other, stuck in one place, forever loving them, caring about their problems. I mean, it's, it's horrific what love does. So, I mean, even when we're asked to name all the good things, I think this is why I find the gratitude framework to be very, very limiting. Because it's, it's not just the vices or the suffering that we're trying to endure, it's just, it's mostly how much we love and belong to each other that breaks our hearts open. Yeah. So I, I did find that, like I, I did honestly have a big whiteboard where I would add up lovely small things, but I, was, I tried not to make a gratitude list. Uh, but it was a gratitude list. I just needed to say that blood work nurse was really nice. Or the, the lobby doesn't smell like grilled cheese anymore. <laughs> but it, it helped me. And I think this is when we say, God bless this day. It's a similar act when we say, God help me notice the things I would not have noticed. And it's an, it's an imperative. God bless this day. You said you'd be here. So bless it. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
You mentioned the response, at least you. Um, <laughs> and you know, I think one thing that so many of us have kind of grappled with is wanting to be yeah. a help, a blessing, a comfort yeah. to people who are suffering more than us and being afraid we're gonna you know, st stick our foot in it or, or whatever. I would, would love to hear your thoughts on how one yeah. is a blessing to the suffering. Oh, that's nice. Sherry, what a thoughtful question. Because I think people have different sort of personalities of blessing. Mm -hmm. Maybe yeah. you're the first responder person who yeah. runs in and has a very loud voice. <laughs> Honestly, we do need that yes. person. Yes. That person uh -huh. will get you the pillow mm -hmm. that no one is getting you. It's maybe you're the food bringer and then your blessing is that of, oh, I really like this, my grandma used to make it. Maybe you're a great planner and next Wednesday you actually will carve out time to pick something up and drop it off. Mm -hmm. I think our, our, the inventory of the thing that feels effortless to us is usually the better place, I think, to lean into to that act of moreness. Mm -hmm. Because almost everybody will, one, we will all say the wrong thing. Yeah. It, it's, I say the wrong thing constantly even though I wrote a whole appendix to hand out to family and friends <laughs> in an act of just mm -hmm. uh, wild hubris. Because um, <laughs> I think because the, the trick is we're, we're trying to learn to keep pace with each other's hopes. Right. Right? You don't want to get too far ahead that you're like, everything's going to be, and you don't want to get too far behind that you can't lean into uncertainty with mm -hmm. them. And I think blessing lets us kind of like key into the gift of intense presence yeah. without saying presence fixes it. Right. Presence just says in this moment, how can I, how can I just like match your pace? Yeah. You know, earlier when you were speaking, you mentioned um, yeah, the language of agency. That yes. We, all... we don't believe in it, do we? <laughs> I mean, entirely. Go ahead, Sheree. Sorry. No. You know, we all love to think that we have agency, and not only agency, yes. Yes. but you know, also perfectibility, as yeah. you were talking about. You, know, you, you, you have a bunch of books about limits and finitude. You know, and I feel like it's not a very DC book. <laughs> you, know you know what I mean? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's not a like a... Uh... Well, you know, in many ways, it's very, it's very gutsy you know, in that um, you, you have books on, on finitude and limit and constraint at a time when... I'm always like, I hope you I, like this medium sad book. <laughs> I, and if your life is going well, I'm actually happy for you. you um, know, it, frankly, yeah. at a time when you know, an unlimited life is yes. all the rage. I mean, I think... Oh, my gosh. You know, there's yes. a car called the Infinity. No yes. Limits is an advertising slogan, a, a sportswear yes. company, a documentary. This um, book was right next to um, uh, unlimit a book called something like Unlimited You. And I was like, oh boy, I feel like I'm part of the Limited You series. And so one of the things I would love to kind of hear you kind of expand upon is, you know, when we, when we put too much faith in agency, yeah. how does that yeah. affect our, not only our capacity to bless, yeah but our, our capacity to receive blessing. Right, right. And, and I mean, theologically too, it's so complicated based on which tradition that mm -hmm. we fall into. We have Christian traditions based on, you know, lie down, God is doing all the work, just enjoy the fact that you're gonna be saved and it's gonna happen, enjoy the ride. 
and we have uh, ones of sort of hyper sanctification. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there is language of Christian perfectibility that runs through many strains, especially Pentecostalism. Mm -hmm. So sometimes based on how we're, what our framework is, we have a different story about how much God wants us to do. And which I will settle here tonight. The answer is, just joking, <laughs> just joking. Um, but an, a, like a healthy account of limited agency in which we have more language for our own, you know, yes, in, in Christ we can all do, do all things, but not always today. <laughs> it allows us to recapture, I think, a humility that is always embarrassing. We don't really want help. Why would we? It's, it's awful and it's usually inconvenient, mm -hmm. but people will need to save us and will, we will need the God who encourages them to do so. So our account of limited agency is the reason why we have the church, is because we will need all members, all people, all kinds, all ages, all types, people we don't like, people we do. And I think it also encourages us to choose a God who's already chosen us. So weirdly in the both, we'll find our um, limited agency is always going to be my favorite category for let's let's bless whatever let's bless whatever is happening today one of the other things i i loved about uh your works is that um it, it points to the beauty of our creatureliness you know um our our embodiment our, our humanity um the way that god created us I think about, um, I think Wendell Berry once talked about how he could see the division of the future basically being divided into people who wanted to be creatures versus people who wanted to be machines. Oh, that's lovely, yeah. And, and just the contrast yeah. to you know, all the constraint and frailty that comes with being embodied. Yeah. You know, we see kind of a, a movement afoot of you know, tech bros who basically want to download their minds, who, who you know, a, a turn towards being a machine, whether it's just being in terms of unlimited productivity. I met someone who has a staff who <laughs> monitors his biorhythms. And I yes. would just like to say that we did not have similar worldviews. <laughs> <laughs> but he seemed really nice. Um, you know, and I, I would love to hear kind of what you make of this, yeah. both um, you know, as someone who is a professor <laughs> of Christianity at Duke Divinity School, but yes. also someone who, yes. has, um, who has suffered the constraints and pains of embodiment as well. Hey, it's just so the, weird, right? It's like yeah. the, that our finitude now is the enemy, mm -hmm. that death is an embarrassment to mm -hmm. us. I mean, yeah. our... I noticed this, so I study self-help books, and I really noticed that too with the, like I've been reading all, like I've been reading hundreds and hundreds of them by myself, so just pardon the in intensity you'll see in my eyes in a moment. Um, but uh, especially the books about the last quarter of life, I think what they keep describing is sort of an empowered second middle age, mm -hmm. as if you'll find new things to be ambitious about. And I think what, what it's struggling to do is to feel, is to, I mean, because we'll never say it. We'll never say, I've lost things I can't get back. We'll never say, I can't go back to before. It's always, it's always younger you, better you. I, I read one the other day, you can become chronologically older, but cellularly younger. <laughs> and I was like, you're doing a lot in your basement, sir. <laughs> 
but I, I think we, I think we are, especially in our story of reinvention, we we've overoxygenated the atmosphere to a point where we can now. It's just, it's it's this, but it's this top of Everest. Mm -hmm. We will see endings. We will, need we will need people to reflect back to us a story we can no longer tell. Yeah. I don't know if we're culturally ready for that. You know, uh, tomorrow was Ash Wednesday, which I guess is sort of a national holiday for frailty and finitude um, in some it. ways. <laughs> <laughs> I know. The bummer season has begun, and I'm very excited. Yeah. And, um, you know, given that you have a couple of books now on, on blessings yeah. and uh, for different occasions, would love to hear about how your own experience has yeah. made you think about uh, the practice of focusing yeah. um, on our own frailty, not just physical, yeah. but also spiritual, our yeah. sin uh, and our mortality and the reminders that Lent brings. Yes, because I do think it's it's a relief. Like, mm -hmm. I did initially think, oh no, I'm suffering and now I have to take on the practice of suffering. This seems like a lot of work. Um, but I think what's such a relief for all those of us who are tired is that it it's, Lent doesn't just ask us to necessarily always pick something up, but we can set something down. Mm -hmm. in the knowledge that we are following God on the downslope. And we are learning how, I mean, just with this cryogenically whatnot business, <laughs> we're going to Walt Disney all of our futures, um, mm -hmm. is that we are learning to tell a story in which uh, Jesus' own suffering is not an embarrassment. Jesus' tears and bleeding mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, and betrayal and loneliness aren't then an affront to our, our, our perfect God. I think feeling an intense solidarity with the, the God who knows intimately our finitude is, I mean, I think Lent is a great time if, if people are just having an awful time to just feel the church learn to speak our language. And then if we are on the upswing a little, if it is our time for in which we can take on those lovely additional practices, I, I do think we are, we are rehearsing the story of our ends. And I, I think with all hard things, we need practice. So we learn in Jesus' death our own. And then and we, we learn in resurrection the long end of a big story. But we're gonna, we need a lot of reminders. So we got 40 days. We got a whole, <laughs> it keeps happening. Yeah. Again, thank you, Kate, oh, for yeah. a wonderful conversation. And Guys, maybe you can you're close the, us out with a blessing. She is the very best, isn't she? It's just like kind and attentive and like tears in her eyes. And, do you mind if I use the podium? I'm going to. Um, so uh, I have the great blessing of my life is actually um, someone who openly fights me on every public act of speaking, which is why I didn't tell her. The Jessica Ritchie, will you come up and read this blessing? You're going to be so mad. She has a terrible attitude and an incredible, she's a wonderful preacher and a beautiful writer, and she is uh, she's one of my very best friends in the world. So Jess, will you bless the crap out of this beautiful group um, with, uh, with this one, because I like it. Okay, I love you. For this ordinary day, Lord, here I am. How strange it is that some days feel like hurricanes and others like glassy seas and others like nothing much at all. Today is a cosmic shrug. 
My day planner says, rather conveniently, that I will not need you, cry for you, reach for you. Ordinarily, I might not think of you at all. Except, if you don't mind, let me notice you. Show up in the small necessities and everyday graces. God, be bread, be water, be laundry. Be the coffee cup in my hands and the reason to calm down in traffic. Be the gentler tone in my insistence today that people pick up after themselves for once. <laughs> Be the reason I feel loved when I catch my own reflection or feel my own self-loathing fluttering in my stomach. Calm my spirit, lift my mind, make this dumb, ordinary day my prayer of thanks. Amen. Bless you. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on living wisely and well. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.